0: I love those. Well, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. It occurred to me as I was preparing this week that for many people, the holidays are bittersweet, even under more normal circumstances. There's, of course, the joy of gathering around a nice home-cooked meal, to be able to spend time with friends and family that you love, to put away the troubles and worries of day-to-day life, and yet that joy is often tempered by the people who are not there. Maybe the empty chair at the table that was occupied last year by a loved one who has gone on to be with the Lord. And so while the holidays can be an occasion for celebrating the best of life, They're always shadowed by the ever-present reality of death. Death is inescapable. The death rate for humanity is still 100%, and that hasn't changed in 2020. Now, as a society, we've generally tried to inoculate ourselves from death. We trivialize it by creating fictional representations in movies and TV. We comfort one another with cliches about people being in a better place. All the while, we try to keep the real thing out of sight. It used to be that as people got older and approached death, that they would move in with their younger relatives to care for them. And that would lay before our very eyes the frailty of our bodies as we would see the effects of our sin and the curse that we were under. It used to be that when people would walk into church, they would walk past a cemetery. And that changes the way you hear the sermon. And so as a church, especially in a time like this, a season unlike any we've experienced before, a holiday season, we need to come to grips with the reality of death so that we can fully appreciate and articulate the glorious news of the gospel. Because the gospel teaches us that death is an enemy, but it's an enemy that has been conquered. So as Pastor Doug said, as we begin this season of Advent, it's important that we understand that in some ways, death is what Christmas is all about. So read with me again, if you would, just verses 14 and 15 of Hebrews chapter 2. since therefore the children share in flesh and blood he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery so in this short passage we see that jesus came he was born to die There's an intimate connection between Christmas and Calvary. They cannot be separated. And so as we enter the Advent season to consider, why did Jesus come? What does it mean that he came to earth as a baby born in Bethlehem so many years ago? Well, I think for the first reason, we have to see a bit of context, which is that Jesus identifies with us. We are his people. And one of the names that we celebrate during this Christmas season is Emmanuel, God with us, God become man. And so the goal of God's work in the world is to reconcile humanity to himself. The very people that have abandoned him, he is pursuing to have a relationship with, a right relationship And so if you ever wonder what God is doing in the world, regardless of the circumstances, what he is doing is he's winning people back to himself, the very people that have abandoned him and made a mess of his world. As it says in verse 10, he's bringing many sons to glory. Now the glory there is essentially God's presence. We just sang about it a minute ago. The the glory of the Lord will be the light within our midst. He's bringing us into his presence through Jesus. Now, way back in the Old Testament, if you're not familiar with the story, the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt. And God brought them out of slavery in Egypt to bring them into his presence. And so at the very beginning of the book, we see they're in slavery. And at the end of the book, they've come out of slavery into the desert. And they've built this giant tent called the tabernacle. And the glory of the Lord descends on the tabernacle for God to dwell in the midst of his people. Now that happened to Israel so many years ago to give us a picture of what God is doing even now through Jesus. But that picture isn't exactly what most people would expect God to be like, even as Matt shared earlier in the service. In the world, in human relationships... If somebody abandons you, that typically means they've severed the relationship. And trust is a difficult thing to rebuild. Even in the midst of the holiday season, I think of the families that don't speak to one another anymore. Perhaps it's just over time and distance they've grown apart, but perhaps it's because someone offended someone years ago and there's never been reconciliation. And so they remain alienated. But even though we have abandoned him, he has not abandoned us. He actively pursues us, and he does this because he identifies with us. We are his people. We're his family. We are to call God Father. That's the Christian name for God. And we call one another brother and sister. Not not any kind of platitude or just casual greeting, but that's a real meaning. Just as marriage is a picture, an illustration of what God is doing to bring Christ and the church together, so our biological families are a picture of how God intends to have a relationship with us, to be family. And so I like the NIV translation of verse 11 that Pastor Doug read from, both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. It's a real identification. God has chosen to make us his people. And he doesn't just do this uh, to make himself look good, but he enters into our weakness. It costs him something. And so he took on flesh and blood because we are flesh and blood. God became man. He so identifies with us that he became like us this is what uh, the theological term is the incarnation God became flesh and in no other major religion does this happen you can study all the world religions in no other religion does the creator of the universe humble himself to enter into the weakness of his creatures in order to save them that's totally beyond the pale of what other religions teach It's unique to Christianity. And yet that's exactly what the true God has done. But think for a minute about this term, flesh and blood. On one hand, it's got kind of an earthy feel to it. It sounds like the stuff of reality, which it is. But it's more so speaking of our limitations and our weakness. We get tired. We get hungry. And so as human beings flesh, and blood, we are tethered to food and to sleep. These are things that God himself has no need of. He doesn't get hungry, and as Psalm 121 teaches, he neither slumbers nor sleeps. And beyond that, as flesh and blood human beings, because of our sin, we're all subject to pain and suffering because of the curse. How many of us have All kinds of illnesses that we battle with year in and year out. Or just day-to-day aches and pains. I know I'm not quite that old, but when I turned 30, my metabolism shut down and my back started hurting all at the same time. How does that happen? Who would choose to do that? Who would subject themselves to pain and suffering that comes with flesh and blood? Of course, the answer is Jesus. Do you ever think about the fact that none of us chose our birth. We didn't get to choose our parents. We didn't choose the place we're born or the time in which we would live. We didn't choose the ailments that we would have to endure or our physical capacities. Those are all given to us. It's the work of divine providence. It's outside of our control. And yet Jesus chose to be born. In verse 14, it says, he likewise partook of the same things. That means while flesh and blood are just kind of thrust upon us as creatures, we don't have control, Jesus took it upon himself. He didn't have to, he chose to. He partook of our weakness and enter into our mess. As the theologian John Owen says, Christ, out of his inexpressible love, willingly submitted himself to every condition except only sin. Since they, that is we, the children referred to in verse 14, since we are flesh and blood, which comes with many infirmities and is exposed to all sorts of temptations and miseries, he himself would also partake of the same. Think about that. For all the pain and suffering, or as John Owen says, misery that we endure as human beings, Jesus took that upon himself, and as it pertains to temptations, he took on even greater temptations than we have. See, you and I only endure a temptation to the point where we give in. So temptation reaches a certain intensity, but then no more for us. And certainly God has given us all that we need to resist that temptation by the Spirit. But for Jesus, who never sinned, he endured the greatest intensity of temptation because he never gave in. And he did this willingly. He willingly subjected himself to the frailty of our condition. And it was absolutely essential that he do this because had he not partaken of flesh and blood, we who are flesh and blood could not have been saved. As another more ancient theologian, Gregory of Nazianzus, put it, what has not been assumed has not been healed. That's why it talks about in this passage the whole thing about angels. The Son of God did not become an angel so that he might save the fallen angels. He became a man, flesh and blood. He humbled himself to our estate so that we could be brought to his glorious estate. He had to become like us for that to happen. But it's not only that Jesus was the only one who ever had a choice to be born, he's also the only one who ever had a choice to die because he never sinned. As it says later on in Hebrews, for you and I, it's appointed to us to die, and after that comes the judgment. And it's appointed for us to die because we have sinned. And death and judgment are the rightful outcomes, the rightful punishment for our sin. But because Jesus never sinned, therefore he was not required to die, and yet he still chose to die. That's why he came, according to this passage. So that brings us to thinking about Calvary. He partook of flesh and blood so that through his own death, He took on flesh and blood so that he could die. And he did that for two reasons. One is to destroy the one who had the power of death, that is, the devil. See, death is quite powerful, as we've already mentioned. Every one of us is subject to it. It spares no one. And as human beings, we don't have the resources to throw off its power. To get ourselves out from underneath it. We don't have that capacity. You know, one group that has been rightfully highlighted during the COVID crisis, the pandemic, are our medical workers, doctors, nurses, and so many others that contribute to, to human flourishing and contribute to restraining the effects of the fall. But for all the advancements in medical knowledge and technology, even medical workers cannot undo death's power. And right now, the devil holds this power because he's the one who lured Adam and Eve into sin in the first place. And so he holds this power over the whole world. And he wields death as a weapon, not only in striking us down in the end, but he uses it to paralyze people with fear along the way. But Jesus was able to destroy death because he was not subject to it, and yet he chose to subject himself to it. He chose to die. One commentator puts it this way. Unlike others, Jesus did not encounter death as a slave, but as an assailant. He intruded into death's domain in order to overcome it. By dying and being raised, Jesus showed that death's power is not absolute, but is subject To the power of God. Now that is good news. If all of us are under the sentence of death because of our sin, isn't it good news to know that there's someone who conquered death? Someone who assaulted death? This thing that all of us, since the the fall of humanity thousands of years ago, have been subject to, someone has assaulted it so that it doesn't have ultimate power, or so that it could be shown that it doesn't have ultimate power. See, the battle between Jesus and the devil is not a fair fight. It's not, as other religions teach, an equal battle between good and evil or light and dark, just hoping that the good wins out. Jesus is himself the creator. And as creator, he is waging war against his creature, Satan. And his purposes will not be thwarted. He will destroy any who get in the way of him bringing many sons to glory. If you want a reason why your faith can be secure, it's right here in this passage. He is bringing us to glory. And nothing is going to stand in the way of him accomplishing that purpose. And of course he demonstrated this power by the fact that he was raised from the dead. As he says elsewhere, as Jesus himself says, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. That is, he's not subject to death, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. And because he so identifies himself with us as his people, his treasured possession, his victory, is our victory. The fact that he exercised that power over death means that his power works for us too. And that is good news. But it's not just good news because we die, but it's good news because throughout our lives, apart from Christ, we're enslaved to the fear of death. And so he's come to deliver us just like He sent God sent Moses to deliver the people of Israel out of bondage, out of slavery in Egypt, God sent Jesus to deliver us out of the ultimate slavery. Slavery to sin and slavery to the fear of death. And people are afraid of death, aren't they? I think if anything has highlighted that, it's been this year. Nothing highlights the fear of death more than a pandemic where people appear to die at a faster rate, although the death rate has always been the same. And part of this fear of death is simply a fear of the unknown, which is understandable. We all kind of have a fear of what is unknown and what things are going to be like. But there's also a fear of what has been known, but has been suppressed. And for all, our culture wants to distance itself from God But from any kind of moral absolute or any thoughts of heaven and hell, it cannot escape the reality. For many people, as they approach death, they feel a deep sense of regret. They think about all the things that they did and realize, in the end, they shouldn't have. Or perhaps even worse, they realize the things they should have done but failed to do. Death has a way of giving us perspective on those things. Because whether we want to acknowledge it or not throughout the course of our lives, we all know there will be a reckoning in the end. We all know that there's going to be an evaluation of things. And so deep down, even those who try to suppress thoughts of death know that there is a God who is there. And we know that to be true because it says so much in Romans. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Comes as a result of suppressing this truth throughout their lives. So, how much better is it for us who hear this word this morning to acknowledge the truth of things, to see the reality that yes, death awaits us and yes, there is a judgment coming, but there is a Savior who has assaulted death on our behalf? What does that do to our fear? Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, puts it this way, We all know in our hearts, however deeply hidden, that God is our creator and the one who deserves our worship and obedience. But we have suppressed that knowledge in order to claim sovereignty over our own lives. That's the trade-off. Acknowledge the truth of these things or claim sovereignty over your own life, which is really a myth. As we've said Our flesh and blood, our very existence, we are subject to. We didn't get to choose all of this. We don't get to choose our death either. So it's really kind of a a myth to be able to claim sovereignty over our lives, and that's what we exchange this truth about God for. So how much greater is it then to be relieved of the fear of death, to be freed from that slavery by the knowledge of our Savior? Jesus has delivered us from slavery to the fear of death. And so if the fear of death is due to our fear of judgment, which is what most people do fear, that is exactly what Jesus has taken away. As Keller goes on, he says, Christianity doesn't leave you to face death on your own by holding up your life record and hoping it'll suffice. That's what Shannon talked about. As a hoping if I'm just good enough, that that'll be all that matters in the end. Instead, it gives you a champion who has defeated death, who pardons you and covers you with his love. You face death in him and in his perfect record. And so death is still an enemy, but it will not have the final say for those who have trusted Christ. Because, see, death is not so unknown when you know someone who has risen from the dead death is not so crippling when you know that the verdict of judgment that awaits you has already been settled and death is not so fear inducing when you know that he has delivered us from its power but of course this deliverance is only for those who have trusted in Christ as it says in verse 16 he helps abraham's descendants or the offspring of abraham Now the offspring of Abraham we know from the rest of the New Testament are those who believe in Jesus. Those who are outside of Christ, if you don't believe in Jesus, you have every right to fear death. Because the judgment still awaits based on your own record. But if you've trusted in Christ, his record has already been settled. The verdict has been rendered. He's been raised from the dead. That's the verdict rendered on Jesus And that's what we share in if we believe in him. So as we sit here today, we didn't get a choice to be born. We don't get a choice to die. But you do get a choice of whether you're going to commit your life to Jesus by faith or whether you're going to try and claim sovereignty over your own life, which is ultimately a myth. So is there anything holding you back this morning? Is it really better to hang on to slavery, to the fear of death? Is it better to walk out of here unsure of whether you're still under Satan's power, which he really does exercise over all those apart from Christ? Or would you rather commit your life today to following him, the one who rose from the dead, who can forgive your sins, and who can grant you eternal life. The fact of the matter is, even if COVID goes away, the mortality rate remains the same. And only one person, Jesus, the baby born in Bethlehem who died on a cross outside Jerusalem, is able to rescue us from death's power. Only he has risen from the dead and can tell us what life is all about. So for this Advent season, for those who know Christ, let's continue our thanksgiving for all that he has done and recognize that one of the huge things he has done for us is to rescue us from the power and slavery to death. And for those who are here who have not trusted Christ, as you think about Christmas, everybody likes the baby Jesus, but remember why he was born. He was born for a purpose. He was born to die to save us from death. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you this morning for the glorious good news of the gospel. As we think about the the carnage that has been uh, laid waste by this coronavirus pandemic, as we see the fear present in so many people's lives, a fear of death, may we not only receive this good news for ourselves, but be eager messengers to take this message of hope that one has assaulted death and come out victorious. May we take that message of hope to a dead and dying world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.